0: you mark. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? Hard to not do well when the weather is like finally getting nice, right? Well, my name is Jason Fickus and uh, I serve here at Daybreak as the director of small group ministries. And uh, as our service host, Matt Pearson, said this morning, uh, today we're continuing in our five-week grace series. This is the third week uh, as we continue to look at how uh, God can change dead ends in our lives into new beginnings. Uh, And the main passage of Scripture that we're going to be covering today, that we're going to be working through, uh, comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Uh, And in this passage, we look specifically at how Jesus uh, dealt with the topic of temptation. And as Christ followers, as we're looking for someone to model ourselves after, uh, there's nobody better than Jesus himself because while he was the Son of God, while he was fully God, he was also fully human. And so he lived here on this earth for 33 years and, and he knows he was able to experience the, the things that we experience. So my hope is that this morning as we look at how uh, God's, great, God's grace helped Jesus uh, in the heat of the moment uh, during times of temptation, that we would be able to, to take what we learned from how Jesus dealt with it and apply that uh, for ourselves in our own lives as well. All right, well, all of you should have received a Hershey kiss when you walked in this morning. Did everybody get a Hershey kiss Everyone got one, I think. Okay, we're good. We're good. Well, uh, first instruction is: do not eat this Hershey Kiss yet, because you're going to need this in a little bit. In a little bit. Um, but for now, if you just want to place it like on your knee or just put it on your lap, kind of there in view, so that you know where it is when we need it, uh, that would be helpful. All right. So we're looking at the topic of temptation this morning, uh, and I don't know how you guys are, but I think oftentimes when I'm like right in the midst of temptation. I have a tendency to feel like I'm the only one who's dealing with it or I'm the only one who's dealing with it in that specific way. And of course, I know in my head that that's not true, but I think I feel that way because I think temptation often has an isolating effect, right? We view temptation as being shameful. And so when we're in the midst of it or when continually we're being assaulted with it, I think we tend to isolate ourselves. We resign ourselves to trying to handle it on our own, without the input of other people uh, and without the input of God. Uh, But what we need to realize is is that the shame that we feel, the shame that we experience is a tool that the enemy uses to try to make it easier for us to sin. You know, the truth is that God's word says that we all face temptation. And, And even when we think that maybe we're the only person facing the type of temptation that we struggle with, God's word even addresses that. The first verse in your outline today comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13, uh, and it says this, The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. Our myth has been debunked. <laughs> and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And as we're working through the message this morning, I think that it might be helpful for you Um, to to think maybe through the lens of a specific temptation that you struggle with on a regular basis. Maybe it's the temptation to to lie in order to maintain that perfect image to to the outside world. Maybe it's the temptation to drink, to get drunk. Maybe it's the temptation to just like tell people off in anger when they're not treating us kindly. Whatever it is, kind of think through that lens as we go through today's message. I want you to think about, how that temptation affects you on a regular basis. Think about uh, the struggle that it creates for you in your life. And then just for a minute, imagine what your life would be like. Uh, imagine how free you would feel if you were able to just crush this temptation, if you were able to, to, to knock it completely out of your life. The, the beautiful thing is that what you're picturing is not just a pipe dream. It's not just some wish that, that's never going to happen. No, God's word says that he is faithful and that any temptation that you're dealing with is not more than you can handle. Circle this phrase in that last verse. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out. That is a promise that God gives us in scripture. He will show you a way out. And the question is how receptive will we be to that way out And do we have the courage to to look that temptation square in the face and to fight through it? All right, well, we're getting closer to the time when we're going to be using this Hershey Kiss. So just to prepare us for that so it's a little easier, I want you to go ahead and unwrap it. Try to keep the foil intact, which is not always the easiest thing to do. And then after you get it unwrapped, you can just kind of sit it on the foil like the foil's a plate, okay? And then you can just put the foil back onto your knee or back onto your lap wherever you had it all right so so i'm guessing that we're probably close to being on the same page when it comes to actually uh knowing what we believe temptation is but but just for the sake of establishing a common definition let's define temptation this way and this is in your outline temptation is the lure to make moral judgments decisions between good and evil without consulting god You know, when we're tempted, it's like we're almost finding ourselves wanting to take the place of God by making a decision on our own without him. Maybe it's because we don't want to feel like we're we're under God's control or maybe it's because we think we're not going to like the answer that God gives us. Or maybe we're just being selfish, right, if we're honest. But whatever the reason, when we're tempted, we're prone to just disregard God and the infinite wisdom that he offers us. Can anybody else like smell chocolate in here? I feel like I can smell the chocolate. In fact, just take the Hershey Kiss and just take a sniff of it for a second. Ah, it reminds me of, you guys been in like when you're on the chocolate world ride and you you go through the roaster and it's just like the aroma is all around you. Anyway, sorry, put it back on that foil wrapper there. Sorry for the distraction. Uh, We're going to keep moving. So back to temptation. Temptation isn't anything new. In fact, it began in a place where you wouldn't even think that temptation should be an issue, in in the near-perfect Garden of Eden. And our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, they were placed in an optimal environment for their success, right? They lived in, in a gorgeous place. They had unbelievable access to God. But then temptation started to creep in, right? The serpent, Satan, he showed up. He tempted them to do the only thing that God had told them not to do, to eat the fruit from one specific tree in the garden. This was like the first ever heat of the moment situation. Now, God, of course, was literally like right there in the garden with Adam and Eve. But rather than them going back to God to ask Him about this decision, they kind of avoided Him. You know, despite the wisdom that God offered them, they chose to make this decision without Him, and then they ended up in the heat of the moment, caving under the pressure of that temptation. Well, I'm getting excited because we're getting close to when we're going to use this thing. Uh, But I don't think we'll need the whole thing to be intact, so I want to invite you, if you just want to nibble the top of it, just just the tippy top of this thing off, go ahead and feel free to do that, because I don't think that'll really hurt us uh, when we go to use the Hershey kiss a little bit later. All right. Mm, that was good. All right, so in Adam and Eve's case, the temptation was this, right? If you eat the fruit, then you can be like God. You can have the same knowledge, you can have the same power that God has. And Adam and Eve clearly were not prepared for this temptation that Satan threw at them. And like them, I think we oftentimes can enter into situations unprepared, uh, not prepared to to fight off the temptation uh, that the evil one puts in front of us. All right, well, even though we're only like a minute or two away from when we're going to be using this thing, you know, it's sitting there on your knee, and then I have you unwrap it, and I have you sniff it, and then I have you take this tiny nibble off the top. So it's probably killing you at this point. You're like, just let me eat this stinking thing. <laughs> and I think the exercise that we're going to use this for will actually work if not everybody still has a Hershey Kiss. So if you want to, just just go ahead and take a full bite, eat that thing up. Anybody? Any, any takers? Now, you, you've probably caught on by now that the reason that you got the Hershey kiss, ah, someone gave in. (laughs) The reason you got this Hershey kiss was for this exercise that we've just walked through. You know, I walked you through some of the rationalizations, some of the ways that that Satan can contort our thinking and get us to compromise in the heat of the moment. And I think this whole Hershey kiss illustration shows us that that falling prey to temptation is often a series of small deceptions, right? Right? Slowly, we're more drawn in and we're more drawn in to this temptation. We get to the point where we convince ourselves that just a little bit isn't going to hurt anything. And listen, I, I get it, you know. Temptation is hard to overcome because our enemy is there at every step. He, he's twisting the truth. He's giving us rationalizations for why we ought to just give in. But remember, God's word said he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. Now, it seems like most of you are able to handle that, that small temptation of the Hershey kiss, which isn't bad, but now in all truth, you may enjoy the Hershey kiss at any time throughout the rest of the service. No guilt, no shame. I'm not coming back to that illustration, so feel free to enjoy it, all right? All right, enough of this. Let's dive into the crux of the message, talk about heat of the moment grace, uh, that grace that God gives us to combat temptation. Heat of the moment grace, your first point, number one is that heat of the moment grace illuminates the pathway of escape. Illuminates the pathway of escape. To figure out what I mean by that, let's dive into that Matthew 4 passage. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and for forty nights he fasted and he became very hungry. Now let's consider the context of Jesus' heat of the moment encounter with the tempter here. What, What can we observe? Well, first off, you can't tell this because I don't have Matthew 3 in your outline. But the sequence in Matthew 4 happens right after Jesus was baptized. Now Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. God spoke down from heaven, this is my son, I'm well pleased in him. The Holy Spirit descended and then like right after that spiritual victory, is when Jesus entered into this period of temptation and testing. And I think that's a pattern that we may notice ourselves in our own life. You know, we come off of a spiritual high, we come off of a spiritual victory, and it's like temptation is waiting there in that next moment to prey upon us. Number two, who accompanied Jesus in the wilderness? Shout it out. The Holy Spirit. You got it. The same powerful Holy Spirit who had just descended to Jesus during his baptism was now with him during his temptation. And as believers, the Spirit of God also lives inside of us, offering us unlimited power as we face temptation. Third thing, how long does it say that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? How many days? 40 days, right? And and this is kind of a familiar number in Scripture. There's about 10 other times in the Bible where there's significant periods of 40 days. And in almost every single one of these 40-day events... God is using this time period as as a time of of trial, of testing, of temptation uh, for the individual or for the group of people that are involved. And then finally, number four, for 40 days, Jesus fasted and it says he became very, very hungry. And in our own lives, Satan often uses the times that we are weak, like the times that we are physically hungry, uh, to tempt us to make poor decisions. And you know, it's kind of like those Snickers commercials say, you're not you when you're hungry, right? And I actually brought along uh, one of my favorite Snickers commercials just to give you a, a taste of what I'm talking about. So check out the screens for a minute. Fourth down, coach. What do we do? I'll tell you what we do. I want you to go on the field. Look for anyone with an O. Let's kill them with kindness. Jimmy, I want you to make balloon animals. Tyler, make little tea cozy. Something fun. Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> we will win this for Mother Russia! Coach, eat a Snickers. Why is that, you? You get a little loopy when you're hungry. Better. Better. Now let's go work! Go get him, guys. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. So when we're hungry or or when we are weak, it's much easier for us to be tempted because we're not ourselves. We're not fully there, right? All right, so with with those observations established, let's keep moving in the passage. Verse 3 says this. It says, During that time... The devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. So we see Satan trying to use Jesus' immediate need against him, right? He knows Jesus is hungry, and so he tempts him with the one thing that he believes Jesus might most desire. He also appeals to Jesus' ego, right? He says, If you are the Son of God, like, come on, Jesus, if you're all powerful, uh, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really all jacked up on prayer and fasting, then go ahead and flex your spiritual muscles. Turn those stones into bread and feed yourself. Or, or aren't you God enough, right? You can almost picture it. Picking up at Jesus' response in verse 4, it says, But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what does Jesus use to combat Satan? He says, no, the scriptures say, right? He uses the word of God. And I want you to take note of that because that's a pattern that we're going to see over and over again through this passage. So the passage continues, verse five says this, then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, notice this ego appeal again, then jump off for the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. You know, I love watching like this ping pong match that is taking place here, right? It's like Satan tries the ego appeal ploy again and and then he even tries using scripture for himself except he does What we sometimes do when we take scripture out of context, right? He he twists it to use it for his own purposes. And and what does Jesus do? He takes that volley and he smashes that ball like right back into Satan's teeth. As he's swinging the paddle, you can almost hear him say, nope, that's a lie. Nope, that's not really what the scripture means, right? Jesus continually uses scripture to help him fight his way out of temptation. And God gives us his word for that very same purpose. God's Word also acts uh, for us as a beacon of light in the dark tunnel of temptation. You know, sometimes when we're tempted, I think we can end up with kind of tunnel vision. It's like all of our right thinking goes dark and our attention is fixated solely on the temptation that's in front of us. But one of the main purposes of God's Word is to shed light in this dark world. Listen to this uh, from what should say in your outline Psalm 119. Um, Actually, I'm going to be starting one verse earlier than you have there, and I'm going to be reading from the NLT instead of the NIV. Other than that, it's the exact same passage. (laughs) No, but the right passage is is on the screen this morning. It says, Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet, a light on my path. The word picture here is actually of two types of light uh, that were used back in ancient Israel. Remember, shocker to us, but they had no electricity back then. You know, there was a day before electricity. So at night, lamps were crucial to them being able to see where they were going. So I have pictures of the two types of light that this passage is referring to. The first one is like a small hand-sized oil lamp. It's kind of like this one. And it's used really just as a lamp to light like the next step on a person's journey. It wasn't super bright, but it was enough light to make sure that the next step could be a safe step. And then a second type of illumination uh, was a torch that was elevated. It shed light not just on the next step, but like up into the pathway ahead. So it provided enough light to, to lead someone from one room or from one place out of that place and into the next place. You know, Jesus had 40 days in the wilderness with not much else to do than to meditate on God's word, to pray, and to fight off the advances of the enemy. And Jesus was so well saturated in God's word that he could immediately notice when Satan was misusing it. For Jesus, God's word became that guiding light you know, that would illuminate each next step that he took to make sure his next step would be a safe step and ultimately would provide him a pathway of escape. It got him from one place to the next place, uh, away from the schemes of the evil one. And the same can be true for us when we learn to feed on the Word of God, to really savor God's Word. There's a great book uh, by Jan Johnson called Savoring God's Word uh, that really teaches us how to feed on the Word of God. It does a great job of helping us to see that we need both Bible study and Bible meditation. We need to read to be informed, right, but we also need to read to be transformed. And here's a quote from that book. She says, And so Bible study is very different from Bible meditation. When we study, we dissect the text. When we meditate it, we, we savor the text. We enter into the text. When we study, we ask questions about the text. And when we meditate, we let the text ask questions of us. When we study, we read and we compare facts and we learn new ways of applying facts. And when we meditate, we read to let God speak to us in light of the facts that we have already absorbed. You know, Jesus had, had studied God's word inside and out. And, and in the desert then, he spent time meditating on it so that God could speak to him out of what was already inside of him. You know, for Jesus and for us, scripture meditation is about soaking our heart in God's truth so that in the heat of the moment, using God's word then becomes second nature. So if Bible study and Bible meditation is a next step for you on your spiritual journey, I do want to recommend that book to you. And we actually have copies of it over at the Resource Center at our Gettysburg Pike Campus. If you want one, you can just write the title of the book on the back of your response card and we'll make sure we get you one for next week. So Heat of the Moment Grace, number one, illuminates the pathway to escape. How does it do that? You know, through using God's Word to show us that first step, and then our next steps out of temptation in any given situation. Now, next to the fill in the blank for point one, I want you to write God's word. For each point, we're going to be identifying uh, some key strategies uh, that God gives us as we look uh, through this Matthew 4 passage. And I kind of view the three points uh, today as it's almost like a pyramid. If I can draw a pyramid. And so in this pyramid the foundation, the strong foundation to build upon is God's word. So what gets layered on top of God's word? That's what we're going to find out uh, as we keep moving this morning. Heat of the moment grace, number two, rejects the tempter's advances. So let's pick up in that Matthew 4 passage. As you recall, we left off with Satan trying to tempt Jesus in a bunch of different ways. And you would think that after getting shut down a few times that Satan might just say, okay, he's not going to give in, I'll go tempt somebody else, right? But you've got to realize if there is one person that Satan wants to tempt, uh, if there's one person that he wants to throw off, it's Jesus, right? Because if Jesus' mission is successful, then Satan has the most to lose. So he keeps it up. Verse 8 says this, Next, the devil took him to a peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So Satan had already used a few different strategies, right, to try to get Jesus to sin. Uh, He appealed to Jesus' physical need. He appealed to ego. Uh, he, he tried to use God's word and to twist it out of context. He's trying everything he can think of. So now in this moment, he moves to strategies uh, of power and of the easy road. And, and let me explain what I mean by that because it's really pretty deceptive of the evil one. You know, think about it. Satan knows that Jesus' ultimate goal is to establish God's kingdom on earth. And, and Jesus knows that in order for him to do that, he's going to have to lock, walk a long, hard, grueling road, right? So it's like Satan's kind of like a used car salesman. And he comes up and he says, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. It's a win-win, really. You want to establish God's kingdom on earth, and I get that, and I can help you with that. All you need to do is just kneel down, bow down, and worship me. We can both get what we want, and, and I'll be saving you all that excruciatingly hard work that you were going to have to carry out. Now, at this point, who knows how many days we're into this whole fasting thing for Jesus. But he's starving, he's weak. I'm sure he's thinking ahead, not only to this situation that he's in, but to what it's actually going to take to accomplish his mission. You know, suffering, dying on a cross. know, for Jesus, if I'm Jesus, I'm at least tempted to take the easy way out. Now, have you ever been tempted to take the easy way out? right, to cut corners or to compromise your ideals in order to to get through something unpleasant, maybe a little bit faster. It's like working in the food service industry. How many of you have ever worked in the food service industry? Yes. What does Tiny Tim say? God bless us, everyone. You know, whew. Well, I worked in the food service industry for around eight years and in this job, like in any food service job, there's the, the two different lists. There's a list of what cleaning is supposed to get done every night, and then the list of what cleaning actually gets done every night, right? Now, because I'm such a rule follower, most nights I actually did the full extent of what we were supposed to do. Uh, But there were nights where my coworkers and I were were tired, Uh, we were hot, we were like, we were done, right? We were ready to get out of there. And we, we knew that we could just take the easy way out if we would just clean all of the stuff that was really easy to see. You know, our manager would come in and be like, yep, that looks good, that looks good, that looks good, right? So we could kind of cut the corners of not cleaning the stuff that was maybe hidden or covered up. know, it's kind of like when we're preparing to have company over and we've got clutter all over our house, right? We can go to the hard work of actually figuring out where everything goes and putting it away, or we just kind of like stuff it under the sofa or throw it into the closet, right? We've all cut corners. We've all taken the easy way out, and it would be easy, it would have been easy, Uh, For Jesus to do that exact same thing, right? To give into that temptation to circumvent some unpleasant circumstances. Uh, But even Jesus in his weakened state was strong in thought. Now, it doesn't say this explicitly in Matthew 4, but I would have to guess, based on the many examples that Jesus gives us in Scripture, that when he was in this solitary place in the desert, that he spent time probably almost exclusively in prayer with his father. So even though it would have been easy for Jesus to just kind of check out mentally, right? Just to kind of let his thoughts wander because he was really hungry and everything else, he did. He stayed focused on God through scripture meditation, most likely through prayer. You know, Jesus took responsibility for his thoughts, and that helped him to stay focused and grounded in his relationship with God. Neil Anderson is another Christian author, and he wrote a book called Liberating Prayer finding freedom by connecting with God. And here's a quote from that book that connects well with what we're talking about today. He says, If you don't assume responsibility for your thoughts, in other words, if you just kind of let your mind wander, you may end up paying attention to a deceiving spirit. As Paul warned us in 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Paul also wrote in 2 corinthians eleven three i 'm afraid that as the servant deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds have been led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ now the interesting thing to me about this quote is that I think it kind of hits on another aspect of temptation that we haven 't touched on yet you know when I think about temptation, I think about those like ginormous blatant in your face kind of things um, but the enemy satan has a nickname uh, of the deceiver for a reason you know and intrinsic in this word deception is that you're unaware that you're even being deceived <laughs> so in this quote anderson is almost saying that almost without knowing we can be led astray we can be tricked right we can be deceived in- into falling prey to temptation and instead of you know what we want to be doing which is focusing on god following god as we let our mind wander were instead being led by the evil one. But Jesus didn't fall for that. He kept his mind strong. He used scripture as a weapon. And he found freedom by being connected to God in prayer. In fact, he was so connected to God in prayer that almost without thinking, he fires right back at Satan. And I love what he says because he doesn't mince words. He says, get out of here, Satan. And even more than the exact words that he chose, I think it's important for us to note that Jesus spoke like, out loud, right? Jesus verbally rebuked the evil one. And I think there's something powerful in actually speaking out against Satan. And I think for us, that, that almost seems really weird at times. Like I'm gonna tell Satan to get out of here, right? But just in the same way that we would talk to God in prayer, Jesus models for us, we can speak out against the evil one as well. And because of Jesus's example he gives us the ability to actually command Satan to flee in the strong name, in the power of the name of Jesus. Now listen, even when we're in the heat of the moment, even when the tempter himself is continually assaulting us, and even when we feel like we have just screwed up time and time again, and maybe used up all of the grace that God has offered to us, God's word says this in James 4. It says, but he gives us, Even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. You know, God gives us even more grace. His word says boldly resist the devil and he will flee from you. doesn't say he might flee from you or if you're lucky he'll flee from you. There's no qualifier there. There's just a bold statement. And then his word says, come close to me and I will come close to you. It's an if you, then I statement. There's no complicated formula there in that text. It's good stuff. So in point one, we talked about studying Uh, and meditating on God's word. That's the foundational strategy that we can use to fight off temptation. And in this point, we build upon the foundation of this pyramid with two more strategies. So next to point two, if you want to write the words prayer, and if you also want to write, if I can write it, verbally rebuke Satan. All right, so what gets stacked on top of that yet? You know, we've covered a lot of ground already, and at this point, it's, it's probably tempting for us to just kind of wrap this thing up, right? Because by the end of verse 10, Satan has tempted Jesus for the third and final time. Jesus tells him to get out of there. End of story, end of message, right? Well, not quite. You know, when, when you're reading scripture, it's important to realize that just as we organize uh, the stories that we tell into intentional sections or intentional paragraphs, that scripture is written in that exact same way. So if you look in your Bible, this section of Matthew 4 is sectioned off from verse 1 to verse 11. And so we've hit on verses 1 through 10 so far, but verse 11 is included in this section for a reason. And we're going to find out why that is as we keep moving. All right, so heat of the moment grace, number three, provides rest in God's presence. Provides rest in God's presence. So, this whole thing goes down over the course of 40 days. Jesus is hungry, he's weak, he's worn, he's tired. Any other adjective you can think of along those lines. He's been through war. I mean, like literally, he's been through a physically, and emotionally, a spiritually taxing experience. And so, what finally happens? You know, if you remember back in verse 10, Jesus tells Satan to scram, right? To leave him alone. So that's where verse 11 picks up. It says, Then the devil went away, like finally, woo-hoo, and angels came and took care of Jesus. Now this, this verse, verse 11, is kind of an intriguing picture to me. Like, even trying to picture what happened. Like, does Satan just kind of like run away with his pitchfork hanging between his two legs? You know, does he like cry like a little kid in the bank who doesn't get a lollipop, right? Does he just like, vanish in a cloud of red smoke. I would have loved to have seen what that actually looks like. And then past trying to picture that, the next phrase says, the angels came and took care of Jesus. I mean, what, do, what does that mean? Like, did the angels fly in carrying a hyperbaric chamber and they're like, Jesus, get into this for 30 minutes and everything's going to be better. You know, did they like install an IV of Chick-fil-A sweet tea into Jesus's arm so that the stuff of life was flowing through him? You know, did they, did they pop chicken minis in his mouth? I guess maybe that's, that's my fantasy of what being taken care of looks like. And actually, hey, free bottle of sweet tea for the first taker her up here after the service today. But anyways, as fascinating as all of that is, here's what I do want you to take note of from that verse. What did Jesus, the all-powerful Son of God, need to do after he went through temptation? He needed to rest. So if Jesus... The, the all-powerful one, if he needed to rest, then how much more do we need to take time to rest and, and to be refilled after we have gone through periods of temptation and trial? And, and what does rest really even look like? You know, ever since the fall of 2011, uh, as a church family, we've kind of been revisiting this rest concept over and over again. And I think we're probably gonna have to keep revisiting it for a long time, because for some reason, Uh, We, myself included, we've not yet learned how to rest. We haven't learned how much of a priority God sees it in our life, and we haven't learned what true God-given rest really even looks like. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, gives us just like a tiny sliver of, of that picture of what it could look like. It says this, it says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will never be shaken. Now note the word choice of David, the psalmist here. Does he say, truly, my tired bones find rest in God? He doesn't say that. Truly, my overworked muscles find rest in God. He doesn't say that. Truly, my frazzled mind finds rest in God. You know, maybe that's part of it. But no, David says, truly, my soul finds rest in God. Truly, the very core of who I am finds rest in God. Truly, the, the part of me that makes me feel alive finds rest in God. And, and I love looking at these verses in the context of temptation because what an amazing thing to recite after God has brought us through a period of temptation. You know, What, what a way to affirm that, that using God's word and, and that a strong connection with God is literally what can save us. Like literally the rock that we can hold on to and the fortress that can protect us when the temptations of life are continually assaulting us and trying to shake us to our core. So we, we've built this pyramid for how to handle temptation. We started out by, by providing a strong foundation of God's word. And then we put a layer of prayer on top of that. And we talked about the power of a strong connection with God. And then on top of that, we put a layer of verbally rebuking the evil one, of literally speaking out in Jesus' name to tell him to leave us alone. And so we finally cap this pyramid off uh, with the top triangle here of rest. Rest. Of of allowing ourselves the time uh, to let God to minister and to refresh our souls. Now, Now, these are great strategies but, but I want to look at how this could actually play out in our own lives with an example. So let's create a hypothetical situation. And, and maybe for you, it's not hypothetical. Maybe it's actually true for you in your life. You know, what if for you, uh, lust is a major temptation? What if it's something that, that Satan just continually assaults you with, trying to separate you from what God has shown you to be pure and holy? So, so how do we go about starting to fight off this temptation of lust? Well, first off, we need a solid foundation in God's word, right? So we need to find some some verses to cling to. So how about Job 31.1? It says, I have made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a young woman. Maybe change young woman to young man or any woman or any man for that matter. Contextualize it uh, in your life. Or or what about using Ephesians 5.3? It says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, because these are improper for God's holy people. You know, those are some great scriptures to study, to meditate on, to live by, and essentially to to use as weapons, right, to fend off the evil one. So next is prayer. If you're someone that that struggles with the temptation of lust, maybe there's a a specific place or maybe there's a specific situation that really triggers that temptation for you. You know, maybe it's when you're surfing the internet. Maybe it's when you go to the gym, right? So before you even enter that place, before you even put yourself into that situation, you've got to get yourself prayed up, right? You've got to meditate on those scripture verses that you've uh, got hidden in your heart and ask God to give you the strength to fight off Satan's advances. So then what happens? You end up in the heat of the moment. It's right there in front of you. You're face to face with it. You're in that showdown with Satan. What do you do then? You know, you use those scriptures. You use your prayer connection with God. And then the third thing that God's word showed us is you verbally rebuke the evil one. You tell him in Jesus' strong name to get out of here, to leave me alone. Remember God's word said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then finally, once the battle is over, what else is left to do? We need to take some time thanking God for providing his heat of the moment grace to you during temptation, and then you need to take time to just rest in his presence to allow him to minister to your soul. And I think these strategies really are transferable to any situation where we're facing temptation. So thank you, God, for giving them to us. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling them for us. You know, in the heat of the moment, when we're tempted to to give in uh, by making a choice between good and evil without the input of the Almighty, God's word says his grace is available to us. God's word says in the heat of the moment, he will provide a way of escape. So just to go full circle, I want to look back at that first verse that was in your outline from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Thank you, God, for the promise of your word. Let me pray for us as we wrap up this morning. God, truly, our souls find rest in you. Our salvation comes from you. Truly, you are our rock and our salvation. You are our fortress and our we will never be shaken. Lord, thank you for providing a pathway of escape in the heat of the moments of temptation. I thank you that your word isn't just something that was written once and then it became null and void. I thank you that your word isn't something that was just applicable to the original hearers in the original context, but that, Lord, your word is active in our lives today. Your word is living, it's breathing, it's moving, and it's so useful for us in our everyday lives. So God, would you teach us to to crave your word? Would you give us the desire to, to soak in your word, to meditate on it, so that when the time comes, it's in there and it can just come right out of us? Would you teach us to submit all of our thoughts to your authority in meditation and in prayer? And would you teach us to trust in the power of your strong name to rebuke the evil one, and to put him in his place. And God, also teach us the importance of and teach us what it looks like to rest in your presence. God, thank you for your amazing grace. Grace so strong uh, that even when we fail, even when we mess up, even when we sin time and time again, it still covers us. You're a faithful God and you will never fail us. We love you and it's in Jesus' strong name that we pray. Amen.